Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory. Today, how to make a prayer book. Earlier this year, the Rabbinical Assembly, that's the name of the Association of Rabbis of the Conservative Movement, put out a new prayer book, or Sidur, as it's called in Hebrew. Sidur Lev Shalem, which means full heart, is full of innovations. There are new translations of traditional prayers, poems are included, there are commentaries on different parts of the Sabbath and holiday services, there are straightforward explanations of simple rites and physical movements, like bowing that takes place during certain prayers. What was the reason the conservative movement decided to make a new prayer book? How is it different from conservative movement prayer books that came before it? We wanted to find out, so we invited Rabbi Ed Feld onto Vox Tablet. Rabbi Feld was the senior editor on the committee that put Sidur Lev Shalem together, and he joins us from his office in Northampton, Massachusetts. Rabbi Feld, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here with you. So 15 years ago, the conservative movement released a new Sidur, and 15 years isn't really such a long time. Why put a new one out already? The Sim Shalom, which was the previous Sidur, was not really a new Sidur. It was rather a revision of uh, what had gone before, and there was a real need to do something new. First of all, in terms of translation— while Sim Shalom was an, uh, an attempt to do a more gender-neutral translation, it wasn't completely gender-neutral, and that was a very important consideration for us. Um, it also uh, continued some of the practices of earlier conservative prayer books, which was that if if something wasn't quite uh, theologically... Um, acceptable to a contemporary audience, uh, it made nice of those expressions. It translated things in a non-literal way. And this was a decision to make a more literal translation of the Sidur. Uh, There are actually, in the previous edition, sentences which appear in the Hebrew which are not translated in the English. And there are some English sentences which don't appear at all in the Hebrew. Uh, And that was part of this giving an interpretive reading rather than a literal reading of the text. We were much more literal in our translation, um, feeling that this generation of Jews really want to have a prayer book that... um, tells it like it is, and they will make the decisions of what they believe or don't believe, but don't want anybody else to make those decisions for them. Before we get to some specifics about Sidur Lev Shalem, I just wanted to ask you sort of generally for people who don't know, if you can give us a kind of brief history of the Sidur, how and when did it first come together as a whole text? Not your Sidur in particular, but just the Sidur, the idea of Sidur. Well, um, you're actually asking a very interesting question, which doesn't have a simple answer. Uh, Sidur, it comes from the word seder, which means order. And in the first millennia, people developed a notion of the order of the service and what ought to be included, at least minimally, in uh, a prayer service especially in regards to a Shabbat service, but also an everyday service. 
gradually people began writing uh, manuscripts of these prayers, uh, and the form of the prayer um, that took place in Germany, which we call Ashkenaz, and then tra- then went to Eastern Europe, is basically the form that our um, Sidur has. The last service, interestingly, that entered the prayer book was Kabbalat Shabbat, the welcoming of, of Shabbat. And that service, which developed in the 16th and early 17th century, was in fact um, the last service to come in. And it's not a coincidence that that happened at the age of printing, so that the prayer book has become even more fixed with the age of printing. And what we did in this Sidur is try to open up that process again to make it more as it was in that first millennia where the process was more open and also as it was in the Middle Ages when, um, before the time of printing, when people added individual prayers uh, to the service. So uh, in many places in this Sidur, we offer alternatives for people. This is not a Sidur which you could just use from beginning to end, but it is a Sidur which a congregant, a leader of the service, has to make some choices about what they want to include and not, and that, that brings us back to actually the origins of the Sidur. I want to ask you some details about Sidur Lev Shalem. There is a lot of explanation in it. The way it looks, for people who haven't seen it yet, is almost uh, like you have in the center of the page, you have the prayers, and then along the margins, almost like a page from Talmud, you have commentary. What are the kinds of commentaries that you and your fellow uh, committee members who made the Sidur, uh, what what did you include? So... Um... I want to talk about that form for a minute. Uh, To my mind, a Jewish book has that form on a page in which there is an internal dialogue going on. Um, Comments are speaking to the prayer. The prayer is influencing the way that people are um, thinking, talking. And and so um, having a prayer book that looks like this, that looks like a page of Talmud, to my mind, makes it into a more Jewish book. Um, and interestingly, these days, even in Israel, where you assume people know Hebrew and therefore should know the prayers, most prayer books are being printed with a commentary because it's just not possible any longer to simply uh, open up the prayer book and, uh, even if you're a Hebrew speaker, know why this prayer was here, know the meaning of some difficult words, um, understand how prayers flow from one another. And so the commentary does that. The commentary that we have on the right-hand side of the page is a commentary which which um, gives historical background to the prayers, gives a context, why is this prayer here? It also is in dialogue with the prayer. If there are difficult words or concepts, 
we try to engage that as a question that the reader may ask. Um, How should I think about this? What are the possibilities here? And so the commentary on the right-hand side serves all of those functions. On the left-hand side of the page, we have other Jewish sources which speak to the prayers on the page, contemporary poems and medieval poems which speak to the themes. Um, Kavanot, intentions about how one might think of this prayer. Um, We have a kind of dialogue going on in which, in some cases, the alternate sources which we have on the left-hand side of the page are, in fact different ways of thinking about the issue than the prayer itself. Um, And so the page is, in fact, a conversation. How did you decide in uh, conducting that conversation which specific commentaries or supplemental uh, readings or thoughts to include? Well, the first thing we did in was the translation. And the translation frequently motivated the commentary. That is, you know, you can say a prayer all your life, and yet when you have to translate it, you say to yourself, oh my God, I never understood that. Or I mistakenly <laughs> understood that. Or, or what does that really mean? And in responding to those impulses as you translate, that gives rise to the commentary. That is the very, I assume that um, what disturbed me, what, what, what was difficult in translation are the very things that we should be uh, talking about in the commentary. So the translation gives rise to the commentary and, and the prayer itself in which you want to say something about its history and its context, all of that. Uh, And then you realize, what will people need to, um, uh, how will they respond to this prayer? What will people need to understand it? And those gave rise to the sources that we did on the left-hand side of comments from all kinds of Jewish sources that relate to and speak to the prayer and give insight into the prayer, argue with the prayer, uh, are in dialogue with the prayer. A moment ago, you were saying that uh, if something was particularly troubling to you in translation, in translating it, then that was something maybe you wanted to find uh, some commentary on or a supplemental reading that would look at that matter in a different light. What's a specific example of something that you were translating that was distressing to you or uh, sobering or just gave you pause? Well, um, a classic example is the second blessing of the Amida, which goes, who gives life to the dead. Now, I'm sure that the people who wrote the prayer, and for many Jewish generations, that had a very specific meaning of um, life after death and the physical resurrection of the body after death in the end time. But that's a more difficult concept for many of us. Uh, Certainly, it is not something that I can hold on to. 
And there would be the choice of just throwing out the prayer or changing its language, which is what the Reconstructionists did and what classical reform did with that prayer. Uh, We've kept the prayer, and then in the margin, we have a comment, um, and here I'll, I'll quote to you the comment, a Hasidic master taught There are parts of ourselves that have become deadened. When we pray this blessing, we might ask ourselves, what part of myself needs to be awakened? What should I be concerned with that I have forgotten? So life to the dead becomes a prayer about that which has become deadened inside us, parts of ourselves that... um, uh, we're no longer in touch with. And in praying this uh, second blessing of the Amida, we can be awakened to um, the question of how do we renew ourselves? What in ourselves needs renewal? Um, and I must say that uh, for myself, after finding this comment and having it in the Siddur, uh, the way I pl- pray this blessing has been transformed. Now, I went to uh, Solomon Sector Day School. I went to summer camps, Jewish summer camps. I went to services pretty much every Shabbat my whole life growing up. And there are a lot of elements of the service that I think people take for granted that you know, for instance, or that a person would know, for instance, uh I remember from a very early age at Solomon Schechter, we would have services in the morning and kids would recite the Amida, the devotional prayer. And the kids who seemed a little bit more uh, religiously erudite would know when to bow exactly and they'd do sort of three steps forward and three steps back. But nobody ever explicitly explained that to me, when to do it and why. Um, and one thing I really appreciated was that the Sidor actually explains that. Uh, what these gestures are for. Um, And I wonder, just for people sitting out there, if you could explain the sort of the three steps forward at the start of the Amida and the three steps backward, what is that meant to evoke? So, first of all, I should remark that we've put in these signals very carefully in the Siddur, the moments of bowing with a special sign attached to it, and um, in the Hallel, for instance, we have a special sign at the moment that the lulav is shaken on the holiday of Sukkot. And all of these signals have an explanation attached to them. So that, um, yes, it very much is a matter of uh, allowing congregants to feel welcome and not to feel awkward in the service. Much of the choreography of the Sidur is taken from court practice. And so the three steps forward is as if we're approaching the presence of uh, an important personage, a a sovereign. Uh, The three steps backward at the end of the prayer is as if we're stepping back from the um, court. The bowing is that kind of initial recognition that one is talking to 
um, someone of note. It, again, it's taken from courtly practice. It was also minimized by the rabbis. That is to say, the bowing takes place at the beginning and at the end of the Amida, but not constantly through the Amida. It was a coming into God's presence with a sense of awe, and what is supposed to be felt is that one is talking directly to God. That is, the choreography is supposed to instill a real sense of presence, of Yes, this is a direct speech to the divine. As I understand it, you've also included some entirely new prayers. There's one that marks transitions in life. Uh, Why did you feel there was a need particularly for that kind of prayer? We wanted the prayer book to speak to um, people in terms of being able to express the critical moments in their lives. And so when the ark is open, we have a whole series of personal prayers before the open ark, Um, a prayer when sad, a prayer for the day of rest, a prayer for transitions in life, a prayer of gratitude. And then in the Torah service itself, we've added a prayer which is was a traditional prayer it was in the talmud and then somehow has fallen out of jewish practice and we've put it back in which is a prayer in recognition of the good things that has happened in one's life uh, a prayer to be recited on joyous occasions i don't know a birthday an anniversary uh, um moving into a new house um getting a new job um and We've added a Misha Berach prayer, a prayer which is recited not by the congregant, but is recited by the leader of the service, blessings for someone experiencing a transition in life. Um, And we have a note, the blessing may be offered for one graduating, taking a new job, entering or leaving military service, moving to a new community, moving on after a divorce beginning retirement, or experiencing any other moments of significant change. And it begins, Misha Amar Avino Lech may the one who told our ancestor to go forth, and then uh, asks that God be with us in our journey. What has the reception been so far to this new Sidor? People have told me that it just transforms their sense of service. Um, First of all, I don't believe that anybody can concentrate fully through an especially long Jewish service. (laughs) Um, And what the commentary on the side and the alternate prayers allow is for people to allow their minds to wander, to be in the service, to to think about something, to to be struck by a comment, to to uh, read an alternative prayer, and then to come back together into the service, uh, to move in and out in that way, which is much more natural for us and much more our way of being. My hope has been that uh, this helps to transform and revive 
services in conservative synagogues and in independent congregations, which buy the Sidur. Um, I know people who sit with the Sidur at home and and it's revived their sense of prayer, just even without a congregation. Um, and that, that's been a, really our hope for the Sidur. If you had to pick one new element from Sidur Lev Shalem that most uh, excites you, what would it be? Uh, I'm very much tied to the translation. Um, uh, Since you say one thing, let me read one poem that we put into the Sidur. It's a poem by Yehuda Halevi. Uh, It... um, uh, Yudha Levi is a 12th century Spanish poet, um, and and um, I'm I don't know if this has been said in a synagogue for I don't know the last 500 years or whatever, but we added it as a meditation for the beginning of prayer. Almighty, nothing exists without you. And none can be like you, the source of all, maker and creator. You have no image eyes observe, but the soul, larged in the heart, recognizes you and sees your glory's breath encompassing all. For in you all finds its place, but you occupy no place. My soul Seeing but unseen, come thank the seeing but unseen and bless. Rabbi Feld, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Um, It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Rabbi Ed Feld is the senior editor on the new Sidur Lev Shalem. He spoke with us from his home office in Northampton, Massachusetts. Listeners, have you used Sidur Lev Shalem? Do you use Sidurim in general, or are they something that you have never actually encountered? We want to know your experiences, your thoughts. Share them with us. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Of course, share this podcast and sign up for Vox Tablet on iTunes or any other podcast browser. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory. See you next time.